0: Good morning again, everyone. Welcome to the Medina East Campus of Grace Church. Um, If you don't know me, my name is Seth. I'm actually one of the pastors on staff here at Medina East. And that kind of brings up a very important thing here that I just wanted to share real quick before we launch into our conversation this morning. Um, If we haven't had the opportunity yet to interact or have a a conversation, get a chance to meet each other, um, I just want to encourage you maybe after the service today or after any weekend service for that matter if you're around just want to encourage you to tap me on the shoulder. I promise you, it won't be weird. Okay, but you just tap me on the shoulder, and again, I'd love the chance to meet you, again, interact, hear your stories, share stories, and just uh, hear about the exciting things that God is doing in your life. I think that uh, as we continue to grow. As a campus, um, obviously the population increases or swells on a weekend service with regards to that as well. So it becomes increasingly difficult to kind of have that connection. But that is something that, if you know me, like I really, really value that connection. So I encourage you, like I said, it won't be weird, I promise. Just tap me on the shoulder and I'd love to uh, just connect with you in that way. Uh, for some of you, many of you actually know that we have been in a series uh, the past five weeks that we have called No End in Death And so in this series, basically, we have been digging into this, honestly, this really difficult discussion on pain and suffering. Specifically, like, the origins of pain and suffering in our world, what we're to do when pain and suffering come in life, and how we're to interact with that. And maybe most importantly, where is God in all of this, and what might God be doing in the Middle of our pain and suffering. And so uh, for the past five weeks, we've actually been giving you something too called anchor statements, an anchor statement for each week. And so basically you can think of these anchor statements as kind of like short or proverb-like ways of reminding ourselves of the goodness and the love of God as we encounter and as we walk through pain and suffering. So before we shut down this series today, I actually want to draw your attention. Some of you likely received, as you were walking in this morning, uh, a little card along with your program. And by the way, we did run out of those cards. We're going to be having more printed for next week. So if you didn't get one, please sit tight and check in with the Welcome Center next week. We want you to have that. But basically this card, for those of you that that do have them here this morning, um, we have included all six of those anchor statements on that card. So basically, this is just our way of trying to help refresh and remind you of all those six statements so that, again, like when suffering comes around in your life, not if, right? But when suffering and pain and hardship and anguish and all those things come into your life, you can be equipped in ahead of time to kind of embrace that and see what God wants to do through it. So I encourage you to take that card, like put it in your wallet or your purse, maybe uh, on your refrigerator or on the bathroom mirror, basically any place that you go in a a repeating way or a recurring way so that you can be reminded of those things. So if you've got that card, you already have week six. That's the week we're in this week. We're going to shut down this series. And you already have the anchor statement in front of you, and I'll put it on the screen as well. So this is going to be the statement that is going to kind of like be the navigator or that's going to chart our course and our conversation this morning. And so the statement is this is that suffering is outside of God's design, <clears throat> but it is not outside of his control. So suffering is outside of God's design, but it is not outside of his control. So really two parts to that statement. The first is it's outside of his design. The second becomes it's outside or it's not outside of his control. But as we think about the interaction between those two phrases, when we put them together, it kind of creates for us, and some of you are probably already thinking along these lines, kind of creates a little bit of a conundrum for us, or it seems to be a contradiction. Okay, so if if we take the first half of that statement that suffering is outside of God's design, we might say, really? Okay, well, if that's the case, then what automatically follows from that is that God cannot be completely sovereign, right? I mean, if suffering is outside the design of God, and if God has not done something about suffering yet that we know of or that we can see, We might think that, well, God must not be altogether all powerful. He must not really be in control. And yet now when we think about that second phrase in that statement, we say that it is not outside of his control. We start to question, really, it's not outside of his control? And, okay, so if he's able and powerful enough to stop suffering or to deal with it in an effective way, why hasn't he done so already? And this question kind of follows up with his idea of uh, it kind of rails against or creates a tension with the notion of the goodness of God, right? Because the question that inevitably we ask is well, how could a good God allow things like the Holocaust? How could a good God allow things like 9 11, hurricanes in New Orleans, and tsunamis in Indonesia? Like, how could we call that God good? And so honestly, I think when we wrestle with these questions, it's not just what's out there that we struggle with. Oftentimes when we get to what's in here, the fact that we personally experience pain and suffering in this life, oftentimes we're frustrated by these facts and we're frustrated with what to do with them and what God is doing in them. Now, it should be said at the outset that honestly, like this dilemma of pain and suffering Um, it's not like it's anything new to the human experience. It's not like our generation suddenly had these questions or this struggle or this tension. Truth be told, these sort of questions are very ancient. They kind of go back all the way to like the dawn of humanity. And I love how actually a British philosopher named David Hume, notable British philosopher of the Enlightenment, so you're thinking about the 1700s. I love the way that David Hume poses this question because he seems to take all these things, the, all these questions that we have, and wrap them up into a ni- with a nice little bow. He says this, and I'll put it up on the screen. He says, the old questions are still unanswered. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Now, granted, he's a 1700s British guy, so you're going to encounter words that maybe we don't hear every day. But then I love what he does is he sort of synthesizes these two together and he says, is he both able and willing? And then I love this question, then whence evil? Then whence evil? And I think... We know what he's getting at with that last question. And for those of you who are going to go to Tap or Applebee's or on to eat afterwards, when the server maybe sets that 8,000 calorie burger in front of you, just pause strategically and say, then when's evil? Right? Anyway, so I think what winds up becoming so frustrating for us is, too, the apparent, the apparent lack of answers that the Bible has to these questions, questions that we feel like we are entitled to answers to. Now, I should qualify that by saying that uh, the Bible doesn't necessarily directly address some of these questions, but it doesn't immediately follow that because the Bible doesn't directly address the questions we feel like we should have answers to, that the Bible is completely useless on this subject. And when it comes to the point where we're frustrated by the lack of answers that the Bible gives us, I think maybe we ought to ask ourselves, maybe, maybe, just maybe, that the Bible is saying we're asking the wrong questions and that it invites us to ask better questions. Questions that are maybe more more foundational or more fundamental. Questions that if we were actually able to get some answers to, might help us also inform the questions that we feel we're entitled to ask and have those answers to. Now, I know that that's very cerebral to start, so let me just give you an example, because I think it's going to be really clear once I give this to you. Uh, A couple weeks back, my 10-year-old daughter was missing her book bag, Now, this would normally be not a big deal, but this particular morning, she's missing her book bag, and it's about two minutes before she's supposed to be outside the door and about a block down the street to catch the bus in the morning. Now, everybody in my house knows that 8.10 is the time in the morning when every child, big and small and good and bad, is supposed to be out the door and headed down toward the bus eight ten, and and they know this not because I have successfully as a father created some amazing disciplinary structure where my kids rigidly follow that every day. On the on the contrary, it's actually usually about eight oh nine every morning. There is a tidal wave of chaos that washes up on the beach of my home, and uh, usually my wife and I find ourselves asking questions like, "What have you been doing for the last twenty minutes?" <laughs> Get your shoes on already. Where are your pants? <laughs> Stuff like that. And so, this particular morning, um, my daughter, my 10 year old, she bounds down the stairs and she enters into the hallway and she starts repeatedly asking the same question. And by the way, with each repeat, the frequency level of, the, of her voice goes up and up. Where's my book bag? Where's my book bag? And this is exactly how it went. Where's my book did you do with my book bag? And <clears throat> I, like, I was like, seriously, child? You've got to be kidding me. Oh, no, I'll find a book bag for you, and I'll stuff you right in it. <laughs> right? So I'm going to stuff you in that book bag, and then I'll zip it up, put a little postage on it, a Siberian zip code, and we are all good to go with that, right? <clears throat> but as I reflected after the fact, because in the moment, that's what I wanted to do. As I reflected after the fact, I thought, well, wait a minute. The question that Elena asked, where's my book bag? was a very, very relevant question. It was very pertinent in that moment. And why was that question pertinent or relevant? Well, it might have had something to do with the fact that she was already running late that morning for the bus. And it might have had something to do that she was faced with the possibility of a big, messy situation as a result of not having her book bag. Now, her question that she asked was a highly reactionary question, right? Where is my book bag? And it was entirely dictated by her circumstances. And, and notice, when she started asking that re- reactionary question, inevitably, like down the road of those questions, it, it started to shift blame onto mom, right? Mom, it's your fault. Yeah, yeah, right. Like it's mom's fault that you didn't put your book bag where it's supposed to go so that you'd have it for the next day. But as I thought about this, I thought, well, maybe maybe it would have been better for Elena to have, prior to that specific situation where she was running late, maybe it would have been better for her to ask better questions, questions that if she answered those questions might help motivate her to do the right things. Maybe the question she should have asked was, okay, why is my book bag important? What value is there to having my book bag? If she asks that question, that maybe helps motivate her to get a spot in the house where when she's done with the book bag the previous evening, she is putting that there very religiously so that when she encounters her being late the following day, she is able to meet that situation, grab her book bag, and get out to the bus. You see, my my daughter's reaction there tells me a lot. It tells me a lot about her. It probably tells me even more about me. And I think it tells us a lot about us. You see, I think that most of the time, our tendency is to operate in reactionary ways when we are confronted with situations of pain and of suffering. It's usually only when suffering is right here in our faces that we start asking those same old, tired, reactionary questions, right? Like, God, <clears throat> why aren't you doing anything in this situation? What are you doing to me? Why would you do this? Can't you handle this situation? What is going on? It's like, it's like we're running around blaming God for a misplaced book bag when maybe he wants to do something more or different with those circumstances that— present themselves in our lives and in the same way that my wife and I don't want to just do everything for Elena cover her tracks all the time put the book bag back where it should be because we want her to learn and to grow from that situation maybe just maybe God has a similar agenda with regards to when we walk through pain and suffering maybe God wants us to ask better questions and I, I actually think those better questions are three I'm sure there are more but I've kind of identified three and I think it's this it's the question of value who am I who am I <clears throat> why why do I have value what what's my significance the second question is who is God what what is God like how does he interact with the human race how does he interact with creation what's his character what's what's his uh, predisposed disposition toward us and then the third one is kind of like the relationship between the two. It's, what goal does God really have for my life? In other words, it's a directionary question. It's, where's God taking me? Who am I? Who is God? And where is God taking me, or what's his goal for me? And so those are the questions that the Bible not only asks us to ask of it. It's, the Bible is replete with answers and insight into those questions, But especially as we look at the first two chapters of the entire Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, we're actually given an amazing amount of insight into these things. And I'll also say that if you were to turn the page from Genesis chapter 2 to chapter 3, that's actually where pain and suffering first make their entrance into the world. And so even from the very beginning of the Bible, the narrative flow or the narrative arc is telling us that the questions that we should ask and the idea of pain and suffering are somehow inseparably linked. And so what we're going to do this morning is we are going to survey just a couple passages from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in an effort to draw out some maybe big ideas or things that the Bible might be saying to us about this notion that suffering is outside of God's design, but it's not outside of his control. So if you brought your Bibles with you this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn Genesis chapter 1, very first book, first page, first chapter in the Bible. Um, I'll put it up on the screen as well for you. And let me just say, too, that if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning uh, or you don't have one, you can just take one of the Bibles uh, under the seats in front of you, follow along. And surprise, surprise, it's on page 1 in that Bible. So what we're going to do is start in verse 26 of chapter 1, and we'll go through verse 31. This is what it says. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and over the birds in the sky. By the way, if I added the brackets of over because that's what's in the original language. What you see here in your Bibles is often a smoothing over of that original language. But this is what it says. And it was, uh, sorry, God made the, uh, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and over the birds in the sky over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Is he trying to tell us something? So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and over the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. Like God's like, it's all for you. Have at it. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So what we have in this story is uh, obviously like the the author is telling us that this is now the sixth day of creation. And so what we really need to do, if we're going to unpack all the things that we need to in this particular passage kind of need to go back, and we've got 25 verses prior to this, and kind of set the scene for what God is doing in those verses to really draw out what I think the author wants us to get at in this particular passage. So what we need to know of the backstory is that from the absolute get-go, the author of Genesis is telling us that God has, has formed and fashioned this amazing parcel of land. Okay, And so this parcel of land, he forms and fashions it and takes it out of like this watery, chaotic mess. It's almost like you can think of a marshland with a lot of mosquitoes. Not good, not a good situation. So God forms and fashions like draws out this watery chaotic mess into this amazing parcel of land and that he has gone to astounding lengths to inject like beauty and creativity and wholeness into this particular land. And so as the story is told on each of the five days of creation prior to what we see in this passage, and by the way, we should understand the word day in Genesis is more like a, like a fixed period of time where God was intensely focused on one aspect of what would eventually collectively become this amazing good creation. And so what we see is that on each day of creation, we get this impression in the way that the story builds that God is not just arbitrarily or, or whimsically like tossing macaroni at a wall here and seeing what sticks. Instead, the way the author structures this first chapter in Genesis gives us the impression that God has strategically and intentionally designed this world in all of its phases or all of its days So that eventually when it all comes together and kind of climaxes on day six with the entrance of human beings onto the scene, we kind of get this impression that like all along God had in mind who who, who human beings were going to be and that the previous days of creation and him forming and fashioning these things and preparing this land was all with human beings in mind. It was all with human beings in mind. And so even in our passage at the end of day six, God evaluates this particular phase of the project and he calls it very good. Well, that's something that's already repeated for us because at the end of each of the first five days, God evaluates that phase of of the project and he assigns it. He says, that's good. And so what this means by way of repetition is that we should start to get really comfortable with the idea of the word good as being something like suitable for human life and for human life's flourishing, okay? So suitable for human life and for its flourishing. Like, God intentionally designed all of this because he had human beings in mind. Now, just catch this next part real quick, because it's it's super important. The the text says, as we get into our passage of verse 26, that God places something, he drops something called his image into the original human couple, into Adam and Eve. And so the question is like, what, what's the deal with this image? What, what's, what's that even mean? And so actually, I think the author, immediately when he starts talking about the image, he gives us that what follows is that there is a, like a job responsibility and a function. There's a vocation that's indelibly connected with this image. Look at what the author says there. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. And he says, then, and let them have dominion over over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Again, it's by way of repetition of this word over that the author's trying to tell us something. He's, he's trying to say that like God has given human beings a special and unique authority and sovereignty and rule over the creation. Such that nothing else in all of creation can do now what human beings can do. And, and, and if you capture this real quick, it's, it's kind of like this unique ability that human beings now possess. Unique prerogatives that prior to their creation, only God himself had these prerogatives. And so we get this idea that God, in looking at human beings, says there are aspects of me, God's saying, that I am now going to share with a part of my creation, with these human beings. And so because human beings now bear this image, because they have this job responsibility, because now God is sharing certain qualities and attributes of himself with human beings, this also means that human beings have a unique and a distinct relationship with God, and we see this actually in Genesis chapter 2, and in verse 7, there's kind of like a a detailed or zoomed in look at what we just read in chapter 1. There, it says, the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and check this out, this is wild, you guys, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. You catch that? Humanity, apart from God's intervention, is simply dust. Simply dust. Nothing extraordinary, nothing special, nothing unique. It's just soil. It's just the ground. Humanity is dust. And yet, man, this is awesome. When God gets a hold of dust... And imparts this breath of new life into it. There is a striking and sudden shocking transformation. Into something that looks like God. When God the creator gets a hold of dust. He transforms it into royalty. And suddenly we get this wild picture. That human beings have this unique ability. To collaborate with God. In bringing order and beauty out of the creation. Think about it, when God says back in chapter one that you are to be fruitful and multiply and you are to subdue the earth and fill it. This idea of subdue the earth is to human beings, it's your turn now, be like me, mine this earth for all its potential and bring out to the strongest degree the beauty and the order and the goodness that's already resident in the creation. And so, as we think about our own humanity, if we pause for a second, think about our own humanity in this. Like, you and I, we are built for this. Like, we are built to receive the divine image, to have a measure and degree of authority over the rest of creation. We're not just like the rest. And guys, we were built to receive the very breath of God into our lives that makes us something more significant and more valuable than we would ever be without that. It's as though that God is granting us as human beings the gift of being like him and reflecting him. And it's wild because the creation gets an opportunity itself to create, to grow, and to shape things. And so with this in mind, as we look back to the statement that we made originally, at least that first part, when we say suffering is outside of God's design, we ought to have this picture in our minds when we're thinking about what we understand with that word design. You see, God didn't just put human beings, he didn't just make this place in some like militaristic, law-abiding environment where imperfect people didn't have access and were kept at bay. Instead, when we think about God's design for things, we ought to be thinking something closer to maybe like a playground. A playground. All right, so humor me just for a second. Let's go through a hypothetical scenario. Let's, Let's just say that there is a father who has a bunch of kids and um, he loves his children, and he wants to express that love for his children, so he decides, oh, I've got it. I am going to create this majestic playground for them. I'm going to create it with them in mind. Like, I know each of my children's personalities, so I know that uh, little Susie likes to slide down the slide, and little Johnny, he likes to play with Legos, so this place is going to be filled with Legos. Monkey bars, jungle gym, okay, so I've got this, I know my kids, and so what is that father going to do? He's going to build this playground, and he is going to start by, like, sitting down and writing all this stuff out, architecting this amazing place where not only can his kids enjoy themselves, but he can also leverage some of the stuff that he puts in that playground for their growth, for their development. And so this father pours himself into all these things. When he's finally done with the preparation and the drawings, he then comes out and he starts to work on this thing. And he doesn't do it just arbitrarily or whimsically. He doesn't just toss a bunch of rebar and a slide and say, go to town, kids. He's like each phase of the project, he's thinking about them. And he's doing this, putting that there, the slide over there. Oh, that'll be perfect. And the Legos are going to be all around here and all that good stuff. And then finally, when the father is done, what's he going to do? He's going he's to take his kids He's going to take them into that playground, right? And then the father's going to say, in this scenario, he's going to say two things, okay? The first thing is he's going to tell his kids, hey, guys, I made this for you. Go have a blast. Like, just enjoy yourself. Ring every last drop of life and enjoyment out of what I've built for you. Do that. And and don't just just have, have fun, like enjoy yourself and have fun, but also interact with all the things, the Lego blocks, the slide, the monkey bars, so that you can leverage those things and eventually grow to the point where one day as you're interacting with those things, you realize that you too can build a playground. He says, that's the first thing. Go have a blast. And the second thing the Father says is, now, just real quick, be kind to your brothers and sisters. Just be kind to them. And then the father unleashes all the kids in the playground. And he's in the mix. He's running around with them. He's involved. Well, what's what's usually going to happen in that scenario? (laughs) Well, for for 10 minutes, probably, there's just going to be this awe in his kids. And they're going to light up. And they're going to be all smiles. And they're going to go to town on this thing. But after about 10 minutes, little Susie inadvertently didn't mean it. She cut little Johnny in line for the slide. Didn't mean it. Little Johnny started to grumble. And then maybe after about, you know, 20 minutes, some pushing and shoving going on, backbiting. Maybe some sand is being thrown in another child's face. And then after after about 30 minutes, we've got little Johnny mercilessly and repeatedly smashing little Billy's sternum with the underside of the teeter-totter. And you think, wow, that escalated quickly. <laughs> but you must not have kids. <laughs> that's what you thought. Because that's exactly how it goes. Now think about this with me for a second. Think back. Genesis 1 and 2. All the amazing potential that God brought into this environment. All this potential comes crashing down in Genesis 3. Just like the underside of that teeter-totter on little Billy's sternum, right? Right? In Genesis 3 human beings do what we would think is the unthinkable. They they reject God. They reject his authority in their lives, they reject his good purposes for them. They doubt that he built this land for them and what inevitably happens, they also doubt and reject the value that only God can give them. The value that God has placed In their lives and so human beings reject this and and they think that the playground then is a place to play out their own self-centered purposes rather than to honor the good and the beauty that God had given them not only in the playground but that God had given them in their lives and so Genesis 3 this is where this happens the original human couple they disobey God and they run away and here in Genesis 3 verse 16 God actually steps in and he has something to say about this Genesis 3:16 he says to the woman God said I will make your pains in childbearing very severe with painful labor you will give birth to children your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you and then to Adam he said because you listened to your wife and you ate from the f- the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you you must not eat that don't do that guys He said, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food. What was originally intended to be mined and subdued now becomes an exercise of pain. You will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken for from dust you are and to dust you will return. Guys, right there in Genesis 3 is the origin story of every single pain and every suffering that we experience. For some of you, it's like chronic physical pain. It hurts, and it seems like it's unbearable, and it's unending. There's your origin story right there. Those of us who struggle emotionally with our own value and struggle in relationships when people knock us down or say terrible things about us. We struggle to stop the tapes from being replayed in our mind. We struggle outside, but we also struggle to stop the tape in our own minds about who we really think we are. Here is your origin story. Anyone, anyone who has stood graveside and who has watched the casket of a loved one descending into the ground, into the earth. Like we all know the weight and the gravity of what's happening here. And, and in light of all those things, we feel, we react, right? Right? We feel like we've lost our book bag and that the bus is around the corner and then we'll react even to what we've read here. Like my daughter reacted. We start shifting the blame. God, where were you? What are you doing? Why don't you intervene? This hurts. It's painful, but, but if we miss the story, that's right, that's, that's, where we're going to, that's where we're going to go. But we have to think for a second. In light of everything we've just read, the truth is that apart from God and his intervention in our lives, apart from his goodness operative in us, human meaning and human value is an illusion. It's just an illusion. Without God, right, humanity is just a bunch of dirt just a bunch of dust, just ground, from dust we are, and we know it, to dust we are going to return. And even when God says that, from from dust you are, and to dust you will return, when he says that to Adam, it's not as though God is introducing anything new into the human experience here. What God is saying is that he's confronting Adam, and he's saying, hey, I'm articulating for you the natural course of events that will now happen because you have chosen to reject me and the authority that I've given you. You have chosen to reject the value that I have given you. And if if we're uninformed about who God is then and the value that he gave to human beings, we will again easily approach Genesis 3 from a bad angle. Oh yeah, I see it now. God was the one who brought pain and suffering into this world. It's right there, isn't it? God never, ever curses human beings. He curses the serpent that caused the dysfunction, manipulated the original couple. He curses the ground. He dials up the intensity of pain and childbearing, but he never curses the human beings. We might think in a reactionary way that God is the cause of our suffering, that he's not good, but the answer is it's exactly the opposite. The truth is, God would not be good if he did nothing. I mean, what is good about the creature wandering further and further and further away from the identity and value that their creator gives them and increasingly rocketing down a path that will result in their permanent demise and destruction? What is at all good about that? But instead... God seems to introduce or allow pain to be introduced in the story more like an alarm. And it's an alarm that lets human beings know what would become of us if we continue to spurn his goodness and the value that he gives us in our lives. As, as we think about this idea of pain as an alarm, it becomes all the more powerful if we think about the, the work of a guy named Paul Brand, who was a doctor in India and America in about the middle of the 1900s. Dr. Brand worked with lepers, and he worked on leprosy. And so, listen to what, what one biographer says of his work. This is fascinating. Dr. Brand worked for years treating leprosy patients in India and America. During his labors, he arrived at an astonishing conclusion concerning the pathology of leprosy. Leprosy victims suffer the curse of having their extremities, fingers, toes, feet, and even nose and ears. They deteriorate and waste away, and yet no one at that time knew why. And before Dr. Brand's research, doctors assumed that lepers were cursed with something that, up until that time, they had called just bad flesh. But Brand's remarkable discovery was that the problem lies in leprosy bacilli, which attack the nerves of body parts, triggering a process that leads to the death of the nerves. And when this occurs, a patient who incurs even the slightest wound, even just a bruise, to an afflicted area feels no pain. And consequently, he continues to use the damaged body part, further aggravating the wound, till eventually the tissue becomes so damaged that the flesh actually dies and falls off. Brand concluded that pain is a gift from God that alerts us to the fact that something has gone wrong, and Brand himself was quoted as saying, previously I had thought of pain as a blemish of creation. God's one great mistake. My patience, though, taught me otherwise. Seen from their point of view, pain stands out as an extraordinary feat of engineering, valuable beyond measure. Dr. Brand's determination applies to most diseases and not just to leprosy. When we hurt, we should respond to our body's signals, and we should do our best to relieve the pain. But more importantly, we ought to do our absolute best to eliminate the underlying cause. Guys, I know this is going to sound really, really strange. I know it, and and I hope not to offend anybody, but please hear my heart when I say this. Thank God for pain. Thank God for pain. Without pain, without suffering, without the acknowledgement of these things, we wouldn't have a clue that there is something drastically wrong with the world, and more importantly, there's something seriously messed up and wrong with us. Without pain, we might not even know that there are things like sin and death and evil that exist and are out for our destruction. These things could just potentially go on without any kind of sense of something better. And so the reality of pain and suffering in the world isn't just an acknowledgement that there's something wrong. It also points us in hope that there is still something right, something that God is doing. It's a reminder that God, after all, is in control. And that pain and suffering is not God's vindictive wrath. He's not out to get us. Pain and suffering are actually a part of his plan of generous mercy. It's God's strategic initiative to give us the warning signs that we will actually pay attention to so that we can feel the results of this world in decay rather than be numbed to sin's disastrous effects. And what is completely otherworldly, like amazing about God is not only does he has he, has, does he have the ability to work through our pain to give us that alert or that alarm? God actually works through pain, the pain of childbirth that's promised here in Genesis 3 to eventually one day bring about the birth of a savior. In Genesis 3.15, God promises that the woman will give birth. She will have, the woman will have a seed that will eventually do away with pain and death once and for all. It's through pain that God works to bring about humanity's liberation to sin and to death. And we know this as none other, the New Testament gives us clarity, none other than Jesus Christ who was God of very God and yet took on flesh in an act of unbelievable humility. Takes on flesh, suffers the same things that you and I suffer, suffers an excruciating death on the cross to liberate us rises again ascends into heaven and it's now the bible says like standing interceding with us or for us at the right hand of god and he goes to prepare a new heavenly environment that he will bring when he returns and and as i think about what jesus says in john to his disciples he say he says hey guys it's better that i go away i'm going to prepare keyword prepare a place for you If you think about Jesus preparing a place for his followers who who are united with him by faith, and we think back to Genesis 1 and 2 about the way that God strategically and and, and intentionally prepared this creation, this world where human beings could flourish and have life, so Jesus is doing the same thing. He's at the right hand of God, preparing an environment where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. That thing that we long for, we can hold out hope because of who Jesus is is this is none other than jesus the long-awaited savior who suffered for the sins of the world on a cross that we might become be birthed into a new humanity there's a reason why bible scholars talk about this thing that happens when we place our faith in jesus as being a new birth it's because we are being birthed into a new reality and a new experience, the suffering and the pain that we experience God can use to develop and grow us, to prepare us for the environment that he has waiting for us as human beings. This this is just absolutely groundbreaking and mind-blowing that God can use our pain to call our attention to what's wrong, but also point us to the Savior and everything that's right with what he's doing for us. I'm gonna ask the band to come up as we kind of close things down. And I, I just want to simply, you know, do this in closing is uh a while ago I was uh walking through a passage of scripture in Romans chapter eight, Romans eight, thirty-five through thirty-nine, and I had read that passage a dozen times before, but I had kind of freshly caught in a glimpse of what was happening in the creation narratives in Genesis one through three, and it just struck me so differently and it's so powerful. And I think we, it, we would do well to just read this and soak in this for a second. This is what Paul says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Every kind of suffering that you could know under the sun. Who shall separate us from that? In verse 37, he says, No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Followers of Jesus are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How did he love us? Suffering death on a cross. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul says, I am convinced I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing else can concern me, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul describes Christ followers... Here, as those who are more than conquerors in the midst of incredibly difficult situations. But he calls them that because they are equipped with a new view to what suffering is doing. Now, to be a conqueror in Paul's day and age would have evoked some kind of imagery. And the imagery would have been this. It may be a little graphic, but this is the imagery. Is that there's like a a heap of, of carcasses at the foot of a conquering warrior who had swords in his arms and his hands were raised because he was the victor, because he had vanquished his enemies. To be a conqueror meant that your enemies lie dead at your feet. But to be more than a conqueror, to be more than a conqueror was something entirely different. To be more than a conqueror meant that your enemy served your good. To be more than a conqueror means your enemies, suffering, pain, serve your good. Serve to grow you into something that looks like Jesus. Some of you here today are, are, don't claim to follow Jesus. Maybe you're apathetic to Jesus or you actually um, don't care about him whatsoever or you're violently opposed to him. And I would just offer the challenge to you this morning to think through this idea of Of pain as an alert or as an alarm and think about the God who so lovingly created an amazing environment he lavished his love on you in creation and it was all for you because he wants to connect in that relationship with you so that you can enjoy the the immeasurable beauty and order and goodness that's awaiting people who follow Jesus when Jesus returns and sets up the new heavens and the new earth. So I would encourage you today, the offer of Christ to jump on board with this new creation project, the offer of Christ to bring you a hope that you just cannot know apart from him, the offer is right there at your fingertips, and all it takes is a yes. It takes a step of faith to say, I believe that what Jesus did is what I need that he died for me, that he might liberate me, and that now the suffering and pain I go through is producing something in me to prepare me for what God has in store. I would challenge you as we sing, as the band plays, to maybe just do that business, talk with God. And maybe for the first time, I just want to challenge you to take that step of faith, grab a hold with Jesus' agenda for your life, and discover an amazing value to your life that you would never have apart from it. For those of you in this room that are Christ followers, you follow Jesus, you, you proclaim to have been born again or regenerated, I would just say this, and I, I, and I know that uh, not everybody got cards this morning, those, those anchor statement cards, but I would encourage you, if you didn't get one, get one next week, we'll have them available, but if you did get one, man, just don't throw that away, don't just put it in your pocket, don't just wait until suffering hits you in the face before you pull that thing out part of investing in a relationship with Jesus is reminding ourselves repeatedly of what God says is true, especially in the midst of our suffering. And going back to that repeatedly, time and again, reminding ourselves of who God is and what he's doing in suffering fortifies us for when we experience trials and painful experiences in this life. But above all, in Christ, God has revealed to us, guys, that He is both all-powerful and he is all-loving. And although suffering is outside of God's original design, it's just not outside of his control.